So last week was a big week for us. It was Easter, and we started a two-week series that we're completing today. And uh, last week, we asked the question, really, does God want you to be great? And um, for some of us, the surprise answer when Jesus was basically asked that question by his disciples, he said, yes, God wants you to be great. That innate thing inside of you, that part of you that wants to be great, that wants to be significant, that wants to make a difference, that wants to be counted, where you get to the end of your life and there's this feeling of, I made a difference here, that idea of being great, Jesus basically tells us that's put in you by God. Your creator put that in you. You want to be great because he wired you that way. But then he goes on to teach his disciples some things that are not uh, intuitively uh, known by us, which is one, when we think of greatness, we tend to think of it in sort of a self-centered way. How great can I be? How can the whole world revolve around me? It's natural. We all do that. And Jesus corrects them and says, no, that's not really what it is to be great. To be great is to serve other people. To be great is to make other people important or to help them move along. That is true greatness. Uh, another thing that he corrects with the disciples, and this was all last week, another thing that he corrects is the idea that we think that greatness has to do with our lifetime. If I can be great in my lifetime, you know, a legend in my own mind, that kind of thing, just great right now, that that's all that I want. And Jesus says it really isn't. You don't only want to be great now for 70 or 80 years or however long you live. You actually want to be great forever because you've been created forever. And so Jesus's and God's greatness always has to do not only with this life, but the life to come. And then finally, and this was, of course, appropriate last week for Easter, uh, Jesus just told the disciples, every dream to be great involves a death and a resurrection. And not only his on our behalf, but a death and a resurrection for us. There is this dying to self, and there's this new life of becoming a new person. So that was all last week, and now you don't need to listen to that message if you missed it, because I just gave it to you. But what I want to do is I want to talk about something that's very similar to that, but kind of pushes us a little bit further. And it's not just the desire that we have to be great, but there is something very deep inside of all, all of us to do something great with our life to make a huge difference, to make an impact. That is something that is, again, hardwired into us. We want to do something great. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk first off because some of you are thinking, no, I don't. I really don't. I don't want to do anything great. If I can just get through this life, if I you know, have enough money at the end of the month, I'll be happy with that. If I stay reasonably healthy, I don't need a great life. I could, I could handle sort of an average life. But you know, that's really not how God has designed you. Believe it or not, and this is not a self-help, Joel Osteen kind of talk of, you know, you got it in you, you know, and, you know, be the dream. It's not like that. I'm just telling you that the Bible, over and over again, when it tells us stories about people, God lifts people who are very ordinary, people who are like you and me, to a place of greatness. Now, again, the greatness might be defined slightly differently, but that, that deep desire you have to be significant, you know, to, to make a difference, 
Those are things that God wants to bring out. And so here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that if you're not thinking that way, at least by the end of the message, you will be. You'll be asking the question, what is the great thing God wants me to do? But then I also want to tell you there is a very uh, repeated pattern in the Bible on how great things are accomplished. And it is so counterintuitive. It is so different than how we think. It's so much different than the pursuit of the American dream, the way that we've been raised, that, um, that it is worthwhile talking about. Because some of you are wondering, hey, I want to be great. I want to do great things. And it's not working out. So where is God in that? And believe it or not, there is a really good answer to that. There is a really good answer. So that's what we're doing. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Okay, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'll bring things up on the screen, but you want to look along. So uh, being great, part of it is reading a Bible. So get your hands up, get your Bible, bring your Bibles. It's all a great thing, but we'd love to have you look at a Bible. And I'm going to tell you first a story about me and then a story about somebody you'll care a lot more about. Uh, when I was 35 years old, I... Um, Julie and I moved from Seattle, where we were living at the time, all the way across country to South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. If you've never been in the South, we had never been in the South. It is a way different place. Uh, how many of you, <laughs> Jairus is from the South, the only one, yeah. And so how many of you have ever had sweet tea? All right, sweet tea comes from the South. That's all I'm saying. Cornbread, big in a cor cornbread, there you go. Uh, what else do we have down? Oh, that's about it. Okay, so there's some great things down in the south, really. Grits, yeah, no, eh, grits. Okay, so we never made the grits transition there. Uh, and uh, where we were from, Columbia, South Carolina, it's where the University of South Carolina is, the other USC, that incidentally, when they do a spring game, they don't play touch football, they actually play tackle football. So if you heard about USC yesterday, did a little touch football game for spring practice. Beautiful. Uh, anyway, that is USC. It was also the belt, uh, basically the buckle of the Bible belt. It was as southern and as religious as it could be. I mean, that is where sort of the heart of the Bible belt is. And Julie and I moved all the way across country um, and our family to become the pastor of a small little church, about 100 people. It was a startup church. And our dream for the church was to be a church that was sort of different than the other churches in the city, a church that would be for the unchurched, people that don't go to church. We wanted to create an environment for them, and we wanted to change the city. And Columbia is the capital of South Carolina. We wanted to change the city with this little group of 100 people. So we were so excited. It was a big dream. I was 35 when it came to me, or was given to me, and I was so excited about that. Well, there's another guy in the Bible named David, and you guys have probably heard of David. He's one of the famous people in the Bible. His dream came to him when he was a little bit younger. Let me set the stage. Uh, there's a, a prophet named Samuel who had anointed a king named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And uh, he, he got off to sort of a rough start, and it went down from there. And eventually God came to Samuel and said, Saul will not be the king. I'm going to take the kingdom from him and from his family. Samuel then was commissioned by God to go out and to find the next king. And so he travels to a little obscure town near Jerusalem called Bethlehem. 
And if you're wondering that there's a coincidence between the fact that David was born in Bethlehem and somebody a lot more famous was born in Bethlehem about a thousand years later, uh, that is not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence at all. In fact, as you know, if you follow the, the birth narrative of Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph had to go a long way so they would be born in Bethlehem. And that's because David was born in Bethlehem. We'll get more to that in a second. So anyway, he shows up in Bethlehem. He goes to a, a man's house named Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons. And so Samuel is told that one of these sons will be the next king of Israel. Uh, Jesse gathers his uh, sons together, and he parades them in front of Samuel. Let me tell you how that goes. First Samuel uh, chapter 16 verses 6 and 7. We'll bring it up on the screen, but you might want to be there. We're going to be in 1 Samuel for the whole day, so get your Bible over to 1 Samuel. And it says this, that when Samuel arrived, um, he saw um, Eliab, and Eliab was the oldest. And it says that Samuel looked at him, and just one look told him, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this is the next king. So let me just tell you a little bit about Eliab. Eliab was that guy that had probably just graduated from med school, and he was coming home in his beamer, and he got out, and he was handsome and dynamic, and he was tall, and when he smiled, women swooned, men wanted to be like him. Eliab was an amazing man. In fact, we know that the Hebrew word for Eliab, Eliab actually means you to man. That's what Eliab means in Hebrew, you to man. And so Eli, he, he was shaved. I mean, everything you could think about being a great man, he was a great man. And Samuel looks at him and just says, this is the guy. I mean, we don't even need to look at the rest. It is so obvious. Firstborn, obviously the guy. And then Samuel is surprised. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things as people look at, at the same things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so uh, even Samuel, this very godly man, is just so overwhelmed by the presentation that Eliab makes that he just says, this has to be the guy. He looks so royal. And God says, I don't need a king that looks royal. That is not the first and foremost thing. I don't need somebody that is all that. I don't meet, need the man to be the king. He says, there's something else I look at. And he says, it's the heart. And we'll talk about that in a second, too. What does that mean, it's the heart? So anyway, as it runs through, Samuel goes through all seven sons. Uh, well, six more after that. He goes through uh, Eliab, and then he just starts going down from the oldest to the youngest. And they get all the way through the seven sons that are there. And God, every time, is saying, no, nope, not that one. And they get to the end, and Samuel's a little confused, so he looks at Jesse and he says, is this everyone? Is this, are, are all your sons here? And Jesse, you know, basically, unapologetically says, well, no. But, I mean, it couldn't be the youngest guy, the youngest guy, David, David's out shepherding. I didn't even bring him in for this occasion because I knew that there was no chance that it could be him. And so Samuel says, well, we'll need to wait then. And nobody sits down. We're waiting for David to come. So David is brought in, and at the ripe old age of 12, he is anointed the next king of Israel. And at that moment, David has a dream birthed 
in his heart a great dream to be the king of Israel. Now, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that is repeated over and over again, and this is so relevant to you and me, if you consider yourself an ordinary kind of person who does not do great things, which is what most of us consider ourselves. We are an ordinary person. I don't need to do do great things. It is so fascinating that when you look at the Bible heroes, and, and this is almost universally true, really. There's very few exceptions to this rule that God chooses the people that are the most ordinary. He chooses even people that are disenfranchised, people that the society looks at and says, no way, no way could this person do anything great. And so um, in that society where the firstborn was the one that almost got all the privilege, was always the one that got the inheritance, was the one who was set out for special, in special ways, the firstborn. It is amazing to look at the list of people that are not firstborn that become major players in God's scheme and in the way that he carries out things. So Noah is not a firstborn, and Isaac is not a firstborn, and Jacob is not a firstborn, and Joseph is not a firstborn, and there's others too. God just goes right past that and says, I don't need a firstborn. Not necessarily. I don't need that. In that day and age, if you're a woman, there was only one thing that was important that you did. And this is pathetic to say, but from society's standpoint, there was one thing you needed to do. Do you have any idea what that was? If you're a woman, you needed to have a child. And you needed to have a son. That was your job. Your job is to have a son. Do you know? that God, in some of the most prominent ways, chooses women to be prominent who were barren for almost their whole life. So you get Hannah and Elizabeth. You get women that are barren and that society is pushed aside. And God says, that's the one I'm going to use. That's the one that is going to bear a son that is going to make a huge difference. Uh, Sarah is another one along that list. Uh, in our society, you know, we have the whole immigration issue. And in our society, we tend to look down on immigrants and we think, well, they're a little less than and they're not as important. Well, it's a good thing God doesn't. And when you consider people um, like Ruth and Rahab, they were immigrants that were not even Jewish. And God said, you know what? My Messiah is going to come through their line. Amazing, amazing that God chooses immigrants to have such a prominent place in his plan for the world. Uh, we have people that have major failures. You know, we think of Moses as this great success story. For 80 years, that wasn't the case. For 80 years, Moses was a huge flop. So much a flop, he didn't think God could even use him. Uh, we have another guy, Samson, in the Bible, who just so much destroys his life, just makes bad decision after bad decision, and is finally set in a place where it seems like nothing good can be done by Samson. And in those two people, huge miracles take place. God pushes his plan forward through these failures, people that society would just say, no way. And then even the elderly, some of you might be thinking, you know what, I'm past my prime. God has done everything he's going to do in me. There's nothing great in front of me. Well, just tell tell Abraham and Sarah that. Abraham's 100 years old when they had their son Isaac. Sarah has been barren for her whole life, 90 years old. Caleb, there's a great character in the Bible, Caleb. Caleb, when he's old, older than anyone else, he comes to Joshua and he says, allow me to take over this hill 
and I'm going to kick out everybody that lives there, and I'm going to make it mine. God uses old people. I'm just saying, if you think you're too ordinary, you're not too ordinary. God uses ordinary people. He delights in the fact that we don't bring everything to the table. I can use even you, he says. And there's nobody here that he won't use. He talks about our heart. That is so important. And let me just say, the heart does not have to do with how sentimental you are or how nice you are or even your determination to do things. Those are all great attributes. That's not what God means when he talks about the heart. Again, we'll talk about what he means in a second. Here's the second thing. Is he's wired you for the great dream he has for you. And you might think, I have no idea what you're talking about. But he has given you gifts, talents, skills, experience, passion. He's given you relationships. He has, he has organized your life in such a way that the great dream he has for you will uniquely be done by you. You know, because we look at these Bible characters and we go, well, that was David, and I'm no David. Or, you know, that was Peter, and I'm no Peter. Or that was Esther, and I'm no Esther. And God looks at you and says, yeah, but you're Kevin. And just like I had a plan, for those guys, I still have a plan for you. And there's a verse that is the verse you need to know. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and I want us to read this together. This is not written for the Bible characters. In fact, this, this is written after all the Bible characters that you read about are, are gone. This is written for the church. This is written for you. This is written for me. And it says these words. Let's read it together. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that word for handiwork, poema, actually means that you are his artwork. And what, what that really means is he's crafted you in a very specific way for this assignment that he's given you, this good work that was prepared before, and the before here is like before the foundation of the earth. Well before you were born, he already had a dream in mind for you, specifically for you. And so as he has crafted your life and built you into the person you are, he said, now I've prepared this person to do this great thing. That's what that verse means. And that's what it means to you. He has a great dream for you. Absolutely, I can say it without hesitation. I can say it without any apology. Uh, you know, pastors tend to make overstatements. I know that. That's part of our job. We overstate everything. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the Bible is so crystal clear that every single person has a great thing, a great work that God wants him or her to do. And this verse proves it. This verse tells us that. But let me talk to you a little bit about how that plays out. It plays out in a way different than what you would think. And we're going to look at it through David's life. Because David was crafted a certain way. He was given leadership skills. He was, became a mighty warrior. He was a very courageous guy. 
He was poetic, believe it or not. You know, if you think that being a warrior and being a poet don't go together, well, somehow they went together in David's mind. He wrote Psalm 23, right? The greatest, you know, psalm there is, one of the things that's quoted most in the Bible. David was crafted in a way for the moment that God had him to do a great thing. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about how this goes for David. David starts off great. When he's given the dream at 12 years old, within the next eight years, uh, a lot of things have happened to move him along. One is he is put into Saul's court. It seems to be a total coincidence, not coincidence, providential by God, but he's assigned to Saul because David plays the liar, which is not a kind of person he was. It's an instrument. He plays the liar. And uh, Saul brought him into his court to play for him. Uh, we find out a little bit later a great story, David and Goliath, that David is given the opportunity and he does an amazing thing and kills a nine-foot-tall warrior that has scared everybody else and David kills him. And he becomes then sort of front and center. He becomes best friends with Jonathan, who is Saul's son. And that's significant because who's in line to be the next king when Saul dies? It would be Jonathan. And, John, excuse me, and Jonathan looks at David and says, I don't think I'm to be the next king. I think you're to be the next king. Very significant. He also marries Saul's daughter, Michal, which is another very significant thing. So David is brought into the royal family. Things could not be going better for David. He is assigned to be a general in Saul's army, and he becomes the most successful general. Everything that he does works. Every campaign he goes on, he succeeds. He becomes a hero in Israel at the time. And so it looks out of the gate that this is going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be an easy path. Everything is lining up. He's moving right along into the dream that God has for him. And then Saul becomes jealous. And we read about it in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, it says that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, so that's the showdown with Goliath, so this starts very early on, uh, the, Phil uh, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, and Saul loved this part of the song, Saul has slain his thousands. It was the last part of the song he had a hard time with. And David, his tens of thousands. <laughs> you can say immediately that this new you know, hit on Palestine's top 40 songs, this new song that everybody's singing, is not a song that Saul likes at all. And so Saul starts to reason, and he thinks, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And, David, uh, and Saul starts to realize David is a threat. And then it says, and he kept a close eye on David. That Actually, the word for that is he kept the evil eye on David. It was an eye full of jealousy. It was an eye now looking to tear David down. And over the next several years, Saul many times tries to kill David. He does it in different ways. He's very creative. He tries to create circumstances where David will die. He tries to put him in places where he'll be uh, threatened. He tries to seduce both his uh, son and his daughter to kill David. And Saul even takes matters into his own hands and tries to physically kill David. 
And finally, David is reduced to a fugitive with Saul hunting him down. And David has a few people with him uh, that are trying to protect him and go with him. And Saul has a huge army. And David becomes sort of the Richard Kimball of his time of just fleeing. He's the fugitive. He's running away. He's hiding in caves. He's doing anything to stay away from Saul, the king, who is now obsessed with trying to kill David. And, you know, this is an interesting story. And when we read it in the Bible, it's just a few chapters, so we just assume not that much time passes. Cut to David now. Remember, he was 12. By the time he was 20, things were moving really well. David's hiding in a cave, and he's 35. 15 years of this. This wasn't just like a bad spring or, you know, one bad little season. This is 15 years of being hounded and hunted, of having the most powerful person in the country out to kill you. And the story picks up. David's actually hiding in a cave. The king, the anointed king, is hiding in a cave. And this is a great story. Because here's what happens, and here's what's so important. If God gives you a dream, your assumption is going to be, well, then it should come to me pretty easily, right? I mean, if it's a God thing, it should fall into my lap. And I just want to make this so clear, because David is only one of 20 examples I could give you. We're absolutely not. In fact, if it's a dream from God, almost something, something that is almost certain is that it will be challenged to the point of killed. I mean, it will totally be impossible at some point. And that is the case for David. And I'll tell you, when we went to South Carolina and we had these dreams of starting this church and the church started off well and we started to get some new people coming in and we were meeting in a school and we worked and we worked and we worked and we finally got a permanent place to stay and it seemed like we had momentum going and some of the troubles that had been part of the church left the church, they were people. And so, you know, they left the church and that was all a good thing. We were all happy about that and new people were coming in and people were becoming Christians and then we hit like this plateau, and we just could not move beyond this plateau. And no matter what we did, we sort of stayed at the same size, and people started becoming discouraged, and the, the life change wasn't as significant as it once had been. And I was thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm such a bad pastor. Why can't I get us over the hump? And it went on and on and on. And it wasn't 15 years, but my staying power is much shorter than David, so I became discouraged much quicker. And I just thought, what is wrong? I thought this was the dream God had for me. What is wrong with this picture? Well, God will do that. And if you're sitting in a place where you th you're thinking, I thought I had God's dream, and now it just totally is disappearing. I mean, it's totally wiped out. And it might be, it might be circumstances. It might be what somebody else has done to you. Some of you are sitting there, and somebody has really messed with you. And your dream has died because of that. And then the most painful one is when you've done something. It was your failure. It was your immorality. It was your bad call. It was your, your you know, you're falling apart at the, at the wrong time. And you look at it and you go, there couldn't be hope anymore. I mean, that dream is dead. That dream is gone. And I just, again, I just want to say this one last time, then we'll move on. If you're there, you are right where God wants you. 
you are exactly where God has you. He can't do with your dream what he wants to do until you're in that place, until you're desperate, until you figured out, I can't do this, can't make this work. And then you need to look for something that's going to come your way. And I'm just going to call it here the moment of truth. The moment of truth is going to come your way. When you're in that desperate place, when things are bad, a moment of truth is going to hit you. Let me describe David's moment of truth. His moment of truth is he's running away from Saul. He's in a cave. He's 35 years old. He has a bunch of men. He's back far in the cave because Saul is out looking for him, actually right in front of the cave. And this amazing story happens is Saul, it says in the Bible, has to relieve himself, uh, which if you look like at King James versions and places where they don't think people went to the bathroom back in that day, they, they say he had to get out of the sun and so forth. No, relieve himself is what it means today. He went into the cave to go to the bathroom. And when he went into the cave, he went in by himself. None of his soldiers went in. And here is David with all of his men surrounding Saul secretly because they're back in the dark of the cave. And here comes Saul. And when I say Saul was exposed, I mean it in every single way. Saul is totally exposed at this point. He is as vulnerable as he can be. And it says that David sneaks up and cuts off a part of his robe. Uh, and, and let me just explain the significance of that. Uh, in some ways, he showed amazing control because he didn't kill Saul, and he could have. But cutting off the robe was a statement saying, your kingship, which the robe represents, is false, and I've just destroyed your symbol of power. Now, that's why when we read um, in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, if you fast forward, just flip over a couple uh, chapters, 1 Samuel 24, after David does this, he, it says he's conscience, conscious, conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. Now listen to what David says, because this is super, super significant. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Here's the point. The Lord's anointed. Here's what Paul, uh, David realizes at that moment. This is not between him and Saul. This is between David and God. This is between an issue of does David trust God or is David going to do everything he can to make his dream come true, this dream that God's given him? And here's the way I want you to picture it. David has his dream in one hand. Since the age of 12, he has been pursuing his dream. He's been dreaming his dream. His dream has been threatened. He has been clinging to his dream. He's been doing everything he can to make his dream come true. And at this moment, what he realizes is, while well, this hand is holding on to my dream, God has grabbed this hand, and here's what's happening. David is being shaken so severely, he's going to have to let go of one or the other. Either he's going to let go of the hand that is holding the dream, or he's going to let go of the hand that is holding God, but he cannot hold on to both. Not at this moment, not in this cave. He can either kill Saul and step into his dream. It seems like God has put it right there. Or he can recognize, no, what God's doing is he's testing me. And he's seeing if I'm now at this point, at this moment of truth, am I going to trust in myself? Am I going to trust in my way? Am I going to do something that God would say, I don't want you to do that. That's not my plan. David knew this was not his plan. He knew that Saul had been chosen by God. He knew that he couldn't be the one to kill the anointed one. 
How could you kill the one that God had chosen? And this is the moment of truth that we all face. We come down to it and we think, I've got to make my dream come true. And if I need to take a shortcut, if I need to compromise a little bit, if I need to hurt somebody a little bit to make this happen, well, you know, that's how dreams come true. That's the way Americans do it. It's the American dream. If you have to step on someone a little bit, you got to step on somebody. If you got to shave a corner, God will understand. I'll ask for forgiveness. But here's the point. It's not that God won't forgive you. The point is, he is now, here's, this is, he's positioning you for a dream that is so far beyond what you thought your dream was. And this is the test. His test is not to see if you'll hold on to your dream no matter what, which is what we say as Americans. This is the test to say, I'll let go of my dream and trust God and cling to him and believe that he knows what he's doing. He knows where he wants me. He's got a plan that I can't see, but is better than the plan that I would come up with. It is the moment of truth. And again, this is a pattern that is so common through especially the Old Testament, but we see it in the New Testament too. God tests the dream, then God gives a test to see who do you trust in, and depending on that answer is how your life unfolds, is how your dream moves forward. And you might ask the question, well, why would God do it? That seems like such a tricky, sneaky kind of thing to do. He gives me this great dream, and my heart's in, I'm passionate, and I believe it's from God. Why would he test me like that? What is he trying to do? And I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think that this is, is pretty true. I think God would attest to this. He just wants to make sure that you love him more than you love the dream. And the bigger a dream is, the more it will take your heart and it will change you and make you not into the person who is great. And God says, I don't want that. I want you to be great and then I want you to do something great. But to be great, you've got to cling to me. And here, here's the deal. When God says, I want your heart, uh, there's a lot of virtues that that could mean, but I'll tell you what it means. It means your heart means, God, I will trust you. That's what it means here. I will trust you. I will trust you in the face of times that are hard, in times when the dream is dying, in times when I'm feeling a temptation to compromise and make this happen my own way. In those moments, God, I will give you my heart. I will trust you. I will have faith. That is what the issue is. It is always the thing that it comes down to. What God says is, listen, I can make a lot of things come true. What I need is a man or a woman that says, I will give you my heart. I will trust you. I will fall into your arms. I will do it your way. And God says, when you do that, wow, watch what I can do with your dream. Watch what I can do with this dream that I've given you. That's all I need. I just need you to say, listen, dream God, let go of the dream, grab onto God. And God says, now watch. And we watched this story uh, unfold. Now, my moment of truth came like this. We had gotten into this building. We were scraping along financially. We had plateaued for a while. 
And uh, one day we walked in, the, the building had two floors, and on the bottom floor, one of the toilets had backed up and it had flooded the whole downstairs. And uh, it was going to be thousands of dollars to repair. And we didn't have thousands of dollars. And so I met with the board and we called out the insurance person and the insurance person looked and uh, you know, looked at the whole thing and we had insurance and the guy that owned the building had insurance. Everybody had insurance so we're like, hey, we're all good on this and the insurance guy, adjuster came out and I remember we're walking around and he's talking about it. And so he writes out a check to cover the cost of, of the damage, thousands of dollars. And uh, he writes it out, actually he signs it and he's about to hand it over and he says, hey, one last thing I just need to be clear about. Um, where, where, was the wor where was the plug? I mean, where, was, where did the guy have to unplug the drain? Was it on your property? And my worship guy, I had not been there when that had happened, my worship guy was standing with me and he goes, no, it wasn't on our property, it was next door in the lot next door, that's where he had to go. And the insurance adjuster looked at me and he said, okay, let me make something super clear to you. If this is not on your property, we do not cover it. It has to be on your property. Now, nobody knows where this was done. And he said, I want you to come and be on my staff. And I'm sort of like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be on your staff. But I do want my people to make a good transition. I'll stay on your staff for a year and make sure my people get in with you. And then we were thinking we're moving back to the West Coast. Enough sweet tea and cornbread. <laughs> and, uh, and so eventually, I started really liking working at the church. And I wasn't the senior pastor, but that was OK. I was who I was. A year and a half later, the senior pastor calls me into his office, and he says, I don't think God wants me to be the leader of this church anymore. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, what have you done? And he'd not done anything. He just said, I just don't feel like God's calling me here anymore. I don't think I'm the guy. And within about three months, I become the senior pastor of that church. And that church is about twice as big as what our church was. And we were getting ready to move into a new building. And we moved into the building, and the church exploded in growth. And we became the largest church in Columbia that was doing the kind of ministry that we wanted to do. What would have happened if I'd taken that check? Do you think God had a better plan? Do you think he understood what the dream was? Do you think trusting him was a good call in that case? In David's case, he does not kill Saul. Saul gets killed later. David has nothing to do with it. And David eventually becomes the king over Israel at the age of 44. 12 to 44, over 30 years, God was preparing David to be the king of Israel. Do you think he has patience with you? Do you think that maybe... He may still be up to something, even though you thought it died a long time ago, that there was no hope. Do you think maybe? David not only becomes the king of this small little insignificant country, Israel, Israel under his watch becomes a world power. Under his son's watch, it becomes maybe the most dominant country in the world, one of them anyway. David is the one that prepares Israel to build the first temple. David is the one that moves the capital to Jerusalem. All these things that we, you know, we just think they always were. No, David did that. David writes most of the Psalms that people still read 3,000 years later and find comfort in and challenge in and worship in. 
David becomes the bloodline for the Messiah. And in fact, one of the primary ways that the Messiah is described is he will be the son of David. Not literally the son, but in the line of David. And it's the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and why Joseph and Mary had to travel there. Because God wanted to be absolutely clear who David was and how Jesus fell into line behind David. God had an amazing dream for David. God has a dream for me, and God has a dream for you. Will you trust God with it? If you are not living in the dream now, if you've let the dream go, will you grab onto it again? Will you say, hey, I'm still going to dream? Will you trust him when the chips are down and when it looks like I got to take a shortcut. I got to do it my own way. If I'm going to make this dream happen, it's up to me. Or will you say, no, no, no. I'm going to, I'm going to cling to God. I'll let go of the dream. I'll cling to God. I'll trust him with what's going to happen. This is your time. This is your moment. This is our church. Imagine 200 people that all have their dream from God who come together to pursue it together and trust God together and believe something great is going to happen. Imagine 200 people doing that together. Imagine that being our church. Imagine how that changes our city or the occupation that you're in or the family that you're building. Imagine how that changes things when we come together to do that. In 1924, there was a young man named Eric Little who was a 100-meter runner in England, and he was the fastest man in the world. And as the Paris Olympics were coming up, he was predicted to win gold in the 100 meters, the dream event, the star event of the Olympics. And as uh, that was approaching, a few months out, he learned that the heats of the 100 were going to be run, not the race itself, but the heats, the qualifying heats, on a Sunday. Eric Little was a devout Christian, and he believed that running on Sunday, running on the Sabbath, was not what God wanted. And so he went to the English authorities, the Olympic Committee for England, and said, I cannot run on a Sunday. And they said, what do you mean you cannot run on a Sunday? And he said, the heats are on a Sunday. I can't run on a Sunday. It's the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. He's very clear. He doesn't want me to do that. And they said, you can't do this to us. You are our hope for a gold medal. You've got to run. It is for your country. I'm sure God will understand. You've got to do it. And Eric says, no, I won't run. And so he actually, he, his, you know, he took tons of grief over this. He's not loyal. He isn't somebody that loves England and the Queen and all this. He switches to the 400 to run the 400, a race he has no chance, no hope of winning. One other Englishman is running in the 100. Uh, Harold Abrams, and Harold Abrams ends up winning the 100. So England gets the gold medal in the 100. Eric runs the 400. He not only wins, he sets a world record, and England gets two gold medals. That's a big dream. But let me tell you the most incredible thing. My uh, wife and daughters went up to the Kodak Theater 
uh, this last week. And on the wall are names of pictures that have won the best picture of the year. And let me tell you the most surprising name that's up there. It's a movie called Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire was a low-budget uh, movie that they didn't expect to do anything in the box office. And by word of mouth, it caught fire, and it became like the buzz movie to see that year. And when the Academy Awards came, it was voted best picture of the year. And Eric Little's story not only impacted a generation in the 20s, it impacted the world 50 years later. Because God knows how to finish a dream. And he knows how to finish your dream. And if you'll trust him, he will finish it. Let me pray. Lord, we bow our heads and we recognize that you are the great God who gives dreams. And the reason that we are so intrigued by dreams and drawn to dreams is because you've wired us that way. And yet we confess, Jesus, that so often we pursue our dreams in the wrong way. And now we just want to open our hands and give you our dream and recognize that we can trust you with it, that you can finish our dream way better than we can. And especially, Lord, for those that are in this room, right, right now they're in the moment of truth. Right now is when it's an issue of compromise. It's an issue of doing it themselves, of grabbing their dream and letting go of you, or grabbing you and trusting you with their dream. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us all have the courage to make that right choice. And we will forever be grateful for what only you can do with our dreams. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.